powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. Um, I'm Cal. I'm the pastor here. And uh, it's good, good to have you with us this morning. Um, I'm really excited to be here with you. Um, I, you know, I, I try to remember to always say this. Welcome to this gathering of Hope Bible Fellowship, because that's what this is. This is a gathering of Hope Bible Fellowship, the church. The church is not the building. The church goes into the building. And so really, really excited to have you here with us as we continue to march through the book of Micah, not the book of Eli. Uh, The book of Micah is what we're marching through. That was, see that, comedians call that a callback is what they call that. So that was a, oh, look at this. Thank you. Service with a smile. I love it. Anyway, uh, go ahead and turn to Micah chapter 6. That's where we're going to be at today. And we're going to be camped out there. It's so good to be with you guys. I just love being your pastor. I just feel like I don't... Like, I know I say it a lot, but it's like I feel like I could say it a whole lot more. So, anyway. Hey, uh, I don't know if you've noticed it, but people like to talk about crime. (laughs) I don't know, like they like to watch it on TV. I don't know if you've, you've noticed, but Law and Order is on like its 18th spinoff, and it's been on for like 150 years or something like that, right? Chung uh, chung, right? Uh, Law and Order. And uh, so it's a very popular show, right? And, and so that kind of that thing came first, right? And uh, some of you, so you uh, more mature folks might remember like Hill Street Blues, and stuff like that. Yeah, there you go. There you go. I'm hitting on it, right? I think I kind of remember that maybe from my playpen. But anyway, um, sorry, just kidding. Yes, yeah, just, just kidding. I was a little older than that. But anyway, um, I, you know, I kind of remember those things and crime shows. But now what's, what's become real popular is these true crime things, right? Where uh, you've got true crime uh, shows like on Netflix and stuff and then true crime podcasts. Of course, we have Dateline, which we've had for years, where we... Where we watch and find out, you know, unsolved cases, these crimes. But here's the thing. Uh, In our country, if someone breaks the law, someone commits a crime, um, in some way tries to harm you or, you know, in some way come against your rights as a citizen, you're given the option to press charges, right? Or to not, right? So you can press charges and then if the person is convicted, they're fine or jail time associated with that. There's a a price to be paid by the offending party. Now here, in chapter 6 of Micah, we're going to step into the cosmic courtroom where God is actually going to bring a case against his people, against the people who should have been worshiping and serving him, but they had broken the covenant. God's confronting their people about their sin. It's a serious thing when the Lord God confronts you about your sin, is it not? It's a serious thing when God confronts you about your sin. Now, Micah is there, and he's God's representative standing before the people. God was going to prosecute the case. He was going to prosecute the people based on their sin. God's pressing charges. And I want you, the reason I explain this is because I want you to feel the gravity of this situation, of Micah standing there and delivering this this God's case against the people. So let's read this passage. It's beginning in Micah chapter 6, verse 1, and we are going to go all the way through the whole chapter again. 
We've been doing that a lot lately. Micah 6, verse 1. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God." The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence, your inhabitants speak lies, and your tongue is deceitful in your mouth. Therefore, I will strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve, and you shall preserve, I will give what you preserve, I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap, you shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil." You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their councils that, that I make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we need your help. God, we need your help to understand your word. Spirit, move in our hearts. Help us to understand the things of you, the things of God. Help us to not turn our backs as those in this passage. Help us to not um, run to the comfort of idols and our empty religious practices, but help us run to you, Jesus. Help us surrender whatever it is that we've allowed to come in and, and replace you in our lives, to be in the place where you should be. Jesus, this is about you. This is for you. Be big here, Jesus. It's not about me. Make make me decrease and you increase here, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen. It's a heavy passage, as most of the book of Micah has been, right? A lot of it's been heavy. A lot of it has been lots of judgment, okay? And here we come to this passage, and we have God's case against the people in verses 1 through 5. God will prosecute. He, he's saying, here we go. And what does he do? Right off the bat, he calls witnesses. He calls witnesses of the mountains and the hills. Why the mountains and the hills? Well, they were around. 
They were around and had witnessed the salvation of the people that he had brought out of Egypt and other nations. He will do justice, and they should remember, the people should remember what he had done for them, right? So he's saying, hey, call the mountains and the hills. They, they, they saw what I did for you. And he tells the people to remember what God had done for them. So I, as I was studying this, I got to thinking, uh, what does it mean to remember? And this goes to what we've been learning on Wednesday night as well. We talked about asking questions of the text when we're studying it. I do the same thing when I'm preparing the sermon. He wants the people to remember what he had done for them. So, I, well, what does it mean to remember? Because when I think about remember, I think of, well, can I remember the main points of my sermon for Sunday morning? I don't have to. I've got them here in notes. But you know what I mean? It's like, can I remember the, my, my PIN number for my debit card? <laughs> you know? Can I remember uh, my friend's address instead of having to text him every time I go to his house to ask him where he lives? And the answer is no to the one in particular friend, and he's probably not watching, but if he is, he knows who he is. But the Hebrew word here that's used, and, and, and I know you guys, uh, I don't want it to get too technical here, but zakar, it means, so when we think of remember, we think of remember like for a history exam or something like that. This means to actualize the past into the present by remembering oneself, by re remembering oneself to the past. Now, this is not merely recalling, again, like you would for an exam. This is a re-identification with salvation history and entails a faith commitment. So it's them remembering. It's not just, hell yeah, that happened, but a re-identifying of themselves with this thing in the past, and it requires a faith commitment. This idea of remembering, we are supposed to do this as well. When we come to the Lord's Supper, in Matthew twenty-two nineteen, is Jesus is there with the disciples in the upper room, and it says this, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So they were to remember, to re-identify, to rem- not just remember what God had done, but to say, yes, that's who we are, and that's what we're supposed to be about. That's what we're supposed to be doing. So what were they supposed to remember? If that's what remembering is, God said, remember, what were they supposed to be remembering? Well, they were supposed to be remembering that God had rescued them, that God had made a covenant with them, that God had made a covenant with them, and that he would rescue them, that he, that he would take care of them, and then their side, they would serve and worship only him. He had given them, he'd made them a nation, and in doing so, he'd given them Moses and Joshua as leaders that they could trust to lead them according to God's ways, right? Remember, it, it mentions Moses, it mentions Miriam, but they had, a, they had a history of leaders they could remember that God had, had brought them through, had, had brought to them and led them through. He mentions Balak and Balaam, the Acacia Grove to Gilgal. I don't know if you remember this story. A lot of th- when we think about Balaam, a lot of what we talk about is the speaking donkey, the talking donkey, because that's kind of a huge thing, right, for us, because our donkeys don't talk. Um, I mean, I don't have donkeys, but if I did, I assume, I'm just assuming they would not talk, okay? So, but, but kind of to give you just kind of a 30,000 view look at what that was, was Balak wanted Balaam to come and curse Israel 
But every time Balaam opened his mouth to try and curse Israel, a blessing came out instead. Egypt, and we talk about Egypt to Gilgal, those are extremes representing all of God's saving acts during the formation of Israel as a nation. So he's saying, hey, remember, re-identify all of these things that I did for you, that I've kept my side of the covenant, and he's bringing the case against them saying, you fell short on your side. You fell short on your side. So that's, 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 you know, God's case against them. But what were, what were the requirements of the covenant? What did the covenant require of them? Well, verses 6 through 8, we, we'll get into this. What, what did the covenant require and what did God want of them? You know, Micah here, he uses this kind of escalated absurdities um, to show sarcasm. So there is, there is sarcasm found in the Bible, right? I mean, he's, he's using these, these escalated um, kind of absurdities, you know, like, uh, let's see, in, in verse 6, you know, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? With the Lord, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and thousands of rivers of oil? First of all, let me stop there. A king is the only one that could come up with that. And Micah's this common guy from Morasheth, right? So he's kind of escalating these, showing like, well, what should I do? Should I give all this stuff? And each question that he asks, it, like, it demands this firm negative answer, this overwhelmingly like, no. In one uh, book that I was reading in preparation for this, it says, without repentance and a new heart to identify with God's salvation history, one cannot satisfy the standard of heartfelt obedience. So in other words, it didn't matter if they could have come up with thousands of rams. It wasn't going to be enough because they weren't that sacrifice. That sacrifice wasn't going to be enough. It wasn't even specifically what he was looking for. That's not to, that's not to say it wasn't desirable, to have sacrifices to God, but that wasn't exactly what he was looking for. He was looking for a heartfelt obedience. And without that heartfelt obedience, the rest of it didn't really matter. But they had broken the covenant. And there's this, this description in there of how they, they'd broken the covenant, right? There's this description of what they were doing, the way they were wicked. Well, and we know from, again, from these verses, but then also from previously and what we've talked about in the previous weeks, they were rampant with idolatry. They were worshiping false gods. And they were, even in their worship of God, they were worshiping incorrectly, okay? So they, were, they, they had taken things that should, worship that should have been given to God, and they were giving it to other things, to false gods. Secondly, they were trusting in their military might. They were trusting in the fact that, hey, we're the big bad Israelites, and, uh, we can take care of ourselves. We beat these people, we can beat those other people. They were trusting in pagan nations. Remember, there were threats from Assyria. There was eventually going to be Babylon coming in. They were trusting on pagan nations to help them and, and, and protect them from being overrun and overthrown by these other places, these other nations. And yet, again, they had a form of religiosity 
They believed, hey, we're Abraham's children. We're, we're God's chosen people, so we're fine. We can keep on doing what we're doing. But what they needed to understand and what the point of this sarcasm, right, that he uses here is, is that there's something that God desires more than sacrifice. I alluded to it earlier. There's something that God wanted more than sacrifice. God wanted their hearts. He wanted their obedience. He didn't just want action, but he wants hearts that were wholly surrendered to him. Now, he's not disregarding sacrifices, but relaying the fact that without obedience, the sacrifices are worthless. When God has a man's heart, his actions will follow. This isn't going to be on the screen, but you might want to write this down. Redeemed actions come from a redeemed heart. Redeemed actions come from a redeemed heart. And in verse 8, one of probably the more famous verses from the book of Micah, it says, He has told you, O man, what is good. Okay, so we're getting here into what, what's good. What's good? What's good for them to do? What, how are they supposed to be living? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? Okay, so what's the requirements of this covenant that he has with them? This promise, this, we might say, contract, okay? God always keeps up his side. The people fell on their side. God continues to keep up his side. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. There was an old... uh, I was much younger. There's an old Stephen Curtis Chapman song that went along with this verse, and I I thought that was really, really cool, and that verse is great. But as I, again, as I began to study this, I started to ask questions like, what does it mean to act justly? I mean, I kind of have in my head kind of what that means, but what does that mean, and why would Micah write that here? Not just what does it mean, but why include that as something they were supposed to do? I mean, Kind of the key is because they weren't doing it, right? <laughs> right? I mean, that, that seems pretty easy. But, but what does it mean to act justly? What does it mean to love faithfulness? What does it mean to walk humbly with your God? Well, I, I dug into those things pretty deep. And I, I wanted to look at what the words were that were used for those particular phrases. Okay? So the Hebrew word that's used here for act justly is a word mishpat. And, and don't get tied up in what those words are, but remember what they mean. This word, mishpat, occurs more than 400 times in the Old Testament. And the concept is based on the character of God. This mishpat, this acting justly, is the character of God. God is always just, and therefore he expects that his people would reflect his character and also be just. The people were rejecting this aspect of following God. They were unjust in their treatment of others. We, we live in an unjust world, but we're supposed to be handing out justice to those around us. One book that I read said, God commands us to be dispensers of justice to those around us. You know, I think about, you know, Oprah, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car, but with us, you get justice, you get justice, you get justice. <laughs> 
instead of us bilking and tricking and being deceitful and being unjust in the way we treat individual people, we should be just with the way we treat those around us, our brothers and sisters. Please don't understand me. This is not all about social justice and all that stuff. That's not what, the, that's not what I'm referring to. I'm saying individually how we treat one another around us. Yes, there is something that we need to say about corporate acts of justice. Absolutely. And there are justice issues that we do need to be working towards. But the people were rejecting this aspect of following God, even though it was part of God's character. As followers of Christ, we've been on the receiving end of God's justice. You owed a penalty. I owed a penalty. There was a charge against us of sin, and that it was satisfied by the death of Jesus Christ as an atonement for our sin. And as someone who has been on the receiving end, we must now be on the giving end of justice. Justice was done to us. Now, justice would have been done to us had we been, uh, had we been given the wrath of God and sentenced to eternity in hell. But Jesus took that upon himself. He took that for us. So justice was done, and we were given the righteousness of God, the righteousness of Jesus accounted to us. So we're supposed to act justly. Now, what does it mean to love faithfulness? Now, sometimes, in some of your translations, it may say mercy. It may say to love mercy. I think that's probably in the NIV. It says love mercy. And there's a reason why it's translated different, different in different translation methods, and I'll explain that in just a second. But this word also appears many times in Scripture, and the word is kesed. Kesed. I actually know of a guy that's got a daughter named this. Kesed. It is used to describe God's covenant with Israel in the Old Testament. But the word, here's where you get into why it's, the word's difficult to translate into English. There are some words that are difficult to get from Hebrew into English. Bill Curtis writes that the best definition is loyal love that contains mercy. Loyal love that contains mercy. Again, this is the character of God. This is in the character of God. Therefore, we should be reflecting this loyal love that contains mercy to the world around us. We should be reflecting this loyal love that contains mercy. So that's the first two. What does it mean, though, to walk humbly with your God? And why say that here? Well, they were not walking humbly with God. They weren't even walking with God, right? The word translated for humbly uh, here is the word sana. And this is, again, another difficult word to translate into English. But the best translation is lowly, lowly. Now, this word isn't talking about lowliness as a weakness, okay? Even though we think about that first, we think lowly, we think weak and downtrodden. And, um, but the word lowly here, it's describing authentic humility. This is the opposite of the selfish pride we see in the lives of the people during Micah's day. And if you want to walk humbly with God, you're going to have to have faith and obedience. If you're not doing the previous two things of acting justly and loving faithfulness, it's probably because you're not walking humbly with your God. Because if you're walking humbly with your God, 
You're going to be acting justly, loving mercy. Our pride keeps us from that, though. Our pride wants it to all be about us. It wants my comfort. Do you know how many churches split over preferences, (laughs) personal preferences? Their pride was what was keeping them because they're, they're the nation of Israel. We're God's people, even though they're not living it out. They wanted their own comfort. They wanted what they wanted. But humility is about submitting to the authority of God. It's about seeking His will first before your own and holding out mercy and justice to those around you because that's what Jesus does. Walking humbly with God says, because I believe God, I will obey God. Because I believe Jesus, I'll obey Jesus because he's my king and I serve him. I will do what he wants, not what I want. It's submitting your will and realizing that his ways are better than your ways. It's obeying out of faith. It's obeying out of faith. You must believe and obey God to do this. You've You've got to trust that his will is better than whatever you might choose. And that means that even if you can't see how it's better yourself, you trust that what he wants is more important than anything that you want. And that means obeying what he says in his word. So we're going to walk humbly with our God. You've got to have faith that his way laid out here is better than my way. That his way is the righteous, right way to live because we have faith in Jesus. We trust that and we submit to it. You know, uh, we have a great example of this in the Bible. We have a great example of this in the book of Philippians from Jesus himself. And I told you, I'm pretty sure Philippians is where we're going next in the sermons. And so, I don't want to, like, steal all the thunder here, but Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11 talks a little bit about Jesus walking humbly with God, even though he was God. It says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has, exalt, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm going to follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. We're called to live. If we trust Jesus, we trust him, we trust him for salvation, we trust that that he has bought us, that we belong to him, citizens of the kingdom, so we follow the king, right? We, We do what the king has commanded, and one thing that he not just has commanded but has exemplified is walking humbly with God. Verses 9 through 12, we get the voice of the Lord crying out to the city. The voice of the Lord, God's message to the city. 
in verse 9 and following. Something that we need to, we need to understand here. Verse 9, the voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. They were experiencing discipline, and they needed to understand that God ordained that discipline. Because remember, he'll use discipline to try to gain the hearts of his people. He's fighting for the hearts of his people, and he will even use discipline, which they will 100% find unpleasant. And he does that with us too. He's after our hearts. Sometimes he'll discipline us, and it's not pleasant for us, but it is for our good and for our growth, our sanctification. God is just, and God is for true justice. And injustice is actually offensive to God. Injustice in the world is offensive to God. Injustice in the world only happens because of the fallen nature of man, because the world is, is corrupt with sin. As one scholar puts it, injustice is the byproduct of our depravity. That's, so when I think of that phrase, the byproduct of our depravity, I think of hot dogs. Now, I don't think of hot dogs because they're the byproduct of our depravity, although maybe, okay? Um, but I think of hot dogs because it's a meat byproduct, right? It's a meat byproduct. It's like what, what, it's, everything's produced, and then you also, after you get your steaks and your pork chops and your bacon, then you also get hot dogs, right? And I like hot dogs, okay? I like hot dogs. The word byproduct just makes me think of hot dogs, okay? But it's a byproduct, so you get, you know, Our depravity gives you all of these other terrible things and also injustice. So how have they been living unjustly? Well, he tells us actually. He lays lays out some of the things they've been doing and how they've been treating each other unjustly. Number one, they were cheating each other. They were using unfair, uh, unfair balances and scales. Saying this weight, oh, it's equal out, and they've got a a heavier weight or a lighter weight so that they end up benefiting financially in their business dealings. They were unethical. They were unjust. And I fear that some of us sometimes, um, today we have some Christians who maybe uh, they're out there and they're in the business world and they're thinking, well, if I just fudge this a little bit, you know, if I just lie on my taxes a little bit. But they're cheating others. They're being unethical and unjust. Number two, they were violent. They were violent. In an earlier message, we said they were treating each other as if they were foreign enemies, not like people from the same nation. Three, they were speaking lies, telling lies about each other, unjust. And, And four, being deceitful deceiving each other. Now, I know speaking lies and spreading deceit seem like the same thing. I understand that. But even working, like you can be deceitful in working for, against someone and not straight up lying to their face and still have in your heart a heart of deception. So those are the things they were doing. That's, he's telling the city, like, 
you've broken the covenant, you've been unjust, when I want you to be just in your interactions with one another. And so, here's what's going to happen. And we get to the results of sin, of the results of breaking the covenant. Now, I'm not going to go into the whole thing, but you, you could do a study on this on your own. But in the Old Testament, when there would be a covenant, there's, um, there was a, a ceremony that they did. One of the things they did was they would take these animals, they would split it in two, and lay half on each side, and they would walk between it. And the idea was that if either of us breaks this covenant, what happened to these animals then would happen to us. Like, you'd, you'd be done for, right? That was, that was kind of the idea. So what's the results of their sin? They're breaking the covenant. It's that judgment is coming in verse 16. Verse 16. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation, and your inhabitants a hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. They did things after the pattern of their wicked leaders. These guys, Omri, Ahab, they were famous for the ungodly things they had done, for the wickedness that they had brought in and done in the nation. And the coming judgment was coming because of their actions of disobedience. They followed the pattern. They followed the pattern of these wicked leaders instead of following the pattern that God had laid out in front of them. God wanted their hearts and the fact that God, when God had their hearts, it would be shown by submitting to him in obedience. So as we kind of try to wrap this up and look at, okay, now what, what do we do with that? Like, what, what do we do with that? Well, verse 8, verse 8, which I think is really key here, it, what it really does is it challenges us in our motives for why we do things. It challenges us in our motives. When you do things for God, why are you doing them? When you show up at church, when you serve, when you um, send someone a card, when you do something for God, when you show up and read your Bible in the morning, when you do that, why are you doing that? Are you trying to impress God? Are you trying to impress others? Or are you somehow trying to put God in your debt by doing lots of things for him and then expecting him to do whatever you ask in response? And people live their lives like that sometimes. Are you serving God half-heartedly, hoping that because of it, God will let you into heaven? Do you do lots of religious things, but you do them with pride or hate or deception in your heart? It's really easy for us to become modern-day Pharisees, even by accident. Even the Jews had, like, they had some vestiges of religious behavior amidst their idolatry and their unjustness and the way they treated each other. They put stock in that religious activity, believing that that was enough to secure them as God's people. As long as I go make a sacrifice, I could do what I want. They believed they could do anything and live any way they wanted as long as they kept up their religious activity, their religious identity. But here's the problem. A lot of people today, maybe some of you, we find ourselves acting however you want during the week that you come to church on the weekend and hoping, just hoping that it's enough to outbalance the stuff you did during the week. And it never will be. It never will be. 
God's not looking for your sacrifice only. He's not looking for some time. He's after your heart. Because all that other stuff, it doesn't matter if he doesn't have your heart. Even if you showed up every week to church, it wouldn't be enough without your heart belonging to Jesus. We're talking about wholehearted trust in Jesus that leads to wholehearted obedience of Jesus. Jesus knew, he knew that none of our good works and none of our sacrifices could ever pay the price that our sin demanded. So he gave his life on the cross and died in our place for our sin. And he rose from the grave And he's alive, and he offers us his righteousness, his right standing before God, his forgiveness, his love, and eternal life if we'll stop with our religious going through the motions and surrender to him. Repent of your sin and believe the good news of this gospel. Trust in him, not in your religious activity. Surrender your heart to him. And out of that will flow a desire to obey his commands. Now, I'm going to ask you to stand up with me. I'm going to ask our musicians to come forward. I just want to finish by saying this. So go ahead and stand up if you would. And You might be someone who has been walking with the Lord a long time. Maybe you've not been walking with the Lord a long time. Maybe it's been 20, 30 years. Maybe it's been 20 or 30 days. I don't know where you're at, all of you, okay? But it's very easy... For us, as we, start following, as we start following Jesus, sometimes we get our motives out of whack, all right? And it doesn't mean that you're not a Christian, okay? It doesn't mean that, but sometimes we start doing things for the wrong reasons, right? We start doing things that we want to impress, but we want to look good at church, you know? I want to look like a good pastor, you know? I want to look, you know, whatever, And so this is an opportunity to just repent of that and to seek to serve God out of obedience to God and to, look, I mean, all the other stuff too, if you've not been acting justly, if you've not been loving uh, mercy and kindness, if you've not been walking humbly with God, then you need to repent of those things too. For most of you, it's probably just that you've been going along And in some areas of it, you started to kind of just go through the motions, right? Or you've stopped serving, right? And stopped wholeheartedly chasing after God every day. Here's the good news. If you've trusted Jesus Christ for salvation, you don't have to try and impress God. You don't have to try and earn favor with God. You already got it through Jesus. You already got it. That's the good news of the gospel. Not what you've got to do, what Jesus already did. It's done. That's the good news that we trust in him. And then we can live faithfully out during the week. And those changed, those redeemed hearts lead to redeemed actions. So that's my challenge to you is is to really just, even while we're singing, if you want to sing, sing and worship. If you want to just let the words wash over you. um, If you want to just stand and pray to the Lord and ask God to show you areas of your life where like you've gotten off track in following him or you've let something else get in there. And the good news is that if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you because he's just even when we aren't.
Let's pray. God, thank you so much for um, this group of people gathered, uh, gathered to just hear your word proclaimed.